0: You boys, what a game. Welcome to episode 55 of the Maple Leafs Hot Stove podcast. I'm Nick Ashborn, joined as always by Anthony Petrielli. Last time we talked, we were talking about Sheldon Keefe's job security. It was an own for a stretch. It was a gloomy time for the Maple Leafs. I'm not sure that the mood has changed all that much, but we we're coming to you after a 3-1 and 0 stretch. Uh, a significant turnaround, wins against the Calgary Flames, the Seattle Kraken, and most recently the Winnipeg Jets. Anthony, what has stood out to you about this little reversal fortune for Toronto?
1: the The biggest thing for me is they have a lot of guys playing underwhelming hockey right now, but they're somewhat surviving it. And you often hear people say the mark of a good team is picking up points when you're not playing well and they have a lot of guys that are not playing good hockey right now the the secondary scoring i i wrote about it on monday it's just further exasperated with that winnipeg game where they had a lot of guys not producing i saw um Maple Leaf Hot Stove contributor Kevin tweeted. I mean, it just, it speaks for itself, right? Camps, zero goals in 19. Gregor, zero goals in 17. Nye, zero goals in 14. Bertuzzi, zero goals in 13. Tavares, zero goals in 10. Yarncroc, zero goals in nine. And Domi has won in his last 16 games. So <clears throat> that's over half your forward group. And we're talking an eighth of the season without a single one of them scoring in 8th plus of the season. So I think their record in the last 10 is like 5-4 and 1. It's definitely nothing to write home about. But I guess part of the part of this is twofold. It's one, do you think these guys are just all like incapable of producing and this is how it's going to be because I don't And then further to compound that, which I'm sure we'll get into in more detail later down the road, do you genuinely think their power play is also this terrible given the talent they have at their disposal? Because it's been really, really bad now for weeks. And again, they're still managing to pick up points. So much like we're seeing with Samsonov starting to kind of rebound and balance out at some point, I anticipate something similar for a good chunk of these guys, if not all of them.
0: Yeah, I mean, since the beginning of January, the Maple Leafs are 19th in the NHL in scoring. I don't think anyone believes that that's sort of the baseline of what they can do based on the personnel on this team. Also, you know, we know that Matthews is having this incredible season, and it's not like he's necessarily going to match this exact pace throughout, but we know that he's not the guy he was last year, for instance. Like, he's more like the 60-goal guy. Uh, We don't know exactly where he'll net out, but these these guys, you know, the Bertuzzi, the Domies, the Yarncrokes, the Nyes, you know, the level of belief you have in all of them, it, it's going to vary. Like, it, there is an element of these guys also literally not playing well, right? Like, if you talk about Bertuzzi, yeah. Domi, Yarncroke, Nyes, who I kind of consider, those are the guys beyond the core four who you have legitimate offensive expectations of. Like, yeah, I know Camp isn't scoring and Gregor isn't scoring, but I don't have any expectations for them. I mean, they should probably score a little bit more than the like absolute zero. (laughs) Like they they shouldn't
1: be scoring a one goal every quarter of the season. Like no, in particular shouldn't be like a four goal guy.
0: No, but with them, you know, if they had scored, you know, two goals over the quarter season, then I'd probably be not like, you know what I mean? Like it's the difference of (laughs) like one chance, two chances going in as opposed to, Someone like Bertuzzi, who I, you know, 13 games pass, and my expectation for him over 13 games would be maybe, I don't know, three and a half goals. I don't know if that's the right match. You know what I mean? Like,
1: the bigger thing with Gregor and Camp, to me is they've had so many games over the past couple of weeks, and they're just part, they're just kind of grouped into it, although they're not gonna, they shouldn't be expected to score as likely as the other guys. Is watching games where I just sat there and went, if legitimately anybody else, I mean, anybody else did anything on this team, they'd probably win the game or they'd be right there. You know, you know, they've been as much as it hasn't necessarily been a good process all the time. You know, Edmonton scored with three minutes left to win. Colorado, same thing. Detroit, same thing. Might not be three, you know, plus or minus a few minutes, but, you know, people get the point. Vancouver was a tie game in the third period. And often just watching going legitimately anybody else just do a single thing to contribute to a goal. And you're probably in pretty good shape.
0: And I think some of them, well, I, it is interesting though, because, you know, Bertuzzi is someone that both of us were pretty bullish on compared to his literal level of production a little bit earlier in the season, but his quality of play has declined, right? Like if you look at that, that group of four guys, like the Bertuzzi, Domi, Yarncroke, Nyes, Quartet, since the beginning of January, their expected goals at five on five, all of them between 46.62 and 4926 So that second line, the Nylander Tavares Bertuzzi, and I know that's been broken up a couple times over the last couple of weeks, but that grouping was consistently like tilting the ice. And then in part because the Matthews line sucks up the more difficult matchups. But that was a line that Keith often referred to as like, this is my most reliable line. And now that line is sort of going 50-50 territorially. And like, maybe they'll win you with skill. Like they'll convert more than the the guys they're facing. But that grouping is no longer always in the opposing end. You know, Domi and Yarncroak. I think, you know, the fact that we should taco Nick Robertson because he's sort of the one guy who's doing a little bit here on this end. But like that group with Robertson at its best was giving you offense. But with Robertson coming in and out, they're not doing a ton. And Nyes is, I mean, he's not hard to defend in the, in the sense that he's young. He's very skilled. And there's so much reason to be optimistic about his future. And the fact that he's been shoved into this first line role in many ways isn't necessarily fair to him. But if we put aside that context for a second, like is the player literally playing well and contributing well within his role? I, mean, I think the answer to that is is safely no. Like it's it's just not really working out the first line. And you know what's the alternative to that? We can talk about that a little bit. But those are the players that when we talk about secondary scoring, those are the players that I focus on. And yeah, I mean, you know, last ten, last twelve, however you kind of slice it up, getting one goal and it's a domi goal out of all these guys. You know, it makes an offense that could be and should be, you know, the calling card of the team and the thing that makes this team better than others. Bringing that, it just like it drags them down to the middle of the pack. Like it, the fact that Nick Robertson is the only guy outside these top, top guys who are scoring during a period when John Tavares is not producing at all, as well. We know the blue line doesn't score. Like you, you really need more from these guys. And like Bertuzzi, for instance, we always said, oh, he's playing well, he's doing the right things that lead to offense. He's also like he's just he's whiffed on some a lot of big time chances. Like at a certain point, the process is great, but the longer we get into it, like you, the reason we monitor process is because it leads to results. But if the results never come, then it's hard to keep defending the player.
1: Yeah, and I think I think to your point about you know what can we realistically expect from some of these guys and and that piece of it. I think that goes hand in hand with deployment. I think that goes hand in hand with how these guys are being positioned to succeed or not succeed. So, you know, you mentioned Robertson, obviously he's been in and out of the lineup, even though he's been scoring and you know, the game against Winnipeg was a career high and nice time for him. He was, he, he might've been their best forward straight up in the game. I, I would probably argue that he was, uh, it's slightly comical that Tyler Bertuzzi happens to miss the once in a decade game that the top power play unit was actively benched. You know, it's you couldn't get Tyler Bertuzzi in the lineup the one game in history of all time that they're going to bench the top unit. So that that hurts, and I I look at Bertuzzi. I, I you know you mentioned he just he you mentioned obviously being snake bitten or missing chances. However you want to frame it, he clearly just lacks confidence right now. And part of me kind of watches and goes, Well, how are you helping him get it back? I mean, Tavares is also struggling. So playing with him is not helping. And Nylander, I mean, to be honest, has really not been as good since he signed the contract. I I think that's been very obvious to this point. I'm not saying this is
0: true, but like, I think there's a lot of. Causation that people associate that with Agreed. that it seems very lazy to My, me. Like, oh, he suddenly sucks. Like, come on, man. No, he doesn't. I mean, he suck. has been colder. He has. He, he's definitely playing worse. But like, people who want to say he signed the contract and then something clicked in his brain and he didn't care as much, he became a worse player. I think that that narrative can get dangerous and can get lazy.
1: I think. Well, the specific example I was going to provide is that he just has not drove the net the same way with the puck. I don't think I've seen him do it once really since signing, definitely not the way that he was in the first half of the season. And if you go back and watch a good chunk of his goals, be it the, you know, like the Minnesota overtime winner, any number of them, a lot of them were the leg kick, shoulder down, driving the net. Uh, There was one notable instance that I flagged in my mind that he did try it against Vancouver, um, but it was against Tyler Myers and, and the reach just got to him. So, you know, what can you do? At least he tried. But he definitely has not been... That was always my biggest issue with the production. It's not that he's incapable. It was that he was driving the net more than he had ever drove the net in his career. I and think, that sorry, has yeah. that has subsided. And that is problematic. He does need to get going again.
0: I think he's also... He's fallen in love a little bit with that short side shot. Like, from the back, like he scored on that a 100%. couple times. And he kind of... I think he convinced himself that... He can hit that low percentage shot that nobody else can hit. And, like, to an extent, he can, but he can't make that a huge part of his bag. Like, Austin Matthews will take shots that other people shouldn't and can't really take, but he doesn't fall in love with those shots and make those shots his signature. And I, I mean again I think this is sort of like a little bump in the road. I don't think it's some massive structural yeah. thing where Neilander's gonna forget how to play offense, but there has been this little thing where he had a couple goals like that. And it's I mean, we're kind of floating around the topics here, but I think it's showing up on the power play. Like I think Neilander is settling for a lot of shots yeah. that are just not high quality shots.
1: Yeah, and ultimately you have to you know, the reality is is he signed one of the more expensive deals in the league now. So it's one thing to kind of go through these dips and play when you're making under $7 million, or even if at this point you were making nine and a half, but when you're making 11.5 and you take three weeks of like really not driving the net and the results and the production kind of dip, you know, being uh, pacing to be a 70, 75 point player is not worth 11.5. That's just the reality of it right? We talked about when he signed, I said, I think he's capable of being a 40 goal, 90 point guy for the seasons ahead. And if he is that, I think that's reasonably worth the money. If he's dipping like this and it's consistent where it's a little bit more in and out, that doesn't mean that he can't do it. That doesn't mean he's a bad player. I think more than pretty much any of the other guys, he's shown that he's capable of flipping a switch. And I fully would expect him to if they were playing in the playoffs tomorrow or if you know they were in danger of missing the playoffs. I he more than any other guy on this team other than Morgan Riley I'd sit there and go yeah Neilander will step up and he'll be he'll be legit he'll be really good uh but he hasn't done it so I you know all that is tying back to Bertuzzi to say I think that has also hurt Bertu you know a big part of the chances and what Bertuzzi was doing was driven by Nylander actively being the puck carrier and taking pucks to the net and letting Bertuzzi do his damage there you know you mentioned Nyes is you know, he's getting basically zero power play time last night because he was, you know, the situation with the benchings. He actually did get on the power play time. So it basically took the top unit getting benched and Tyler Bertuzzi's partner having a child for Matthew Nice to get on the power play. And he actually made a nice backdoor play and it barely, barely got deflected and Yarn Croc otherwise would have buried, I'm sure. So, you know, that's what it takes for Nice to get on the power play. And that's tough because he's a skill guy. So not playing there, it just even if it, even if it's not reflected in production, meaning you know if he's playing there regularly and producing, and it's like it's bumping up his totals. Even that aside, it's just puck touches in the league. It's just opportunities to create offense. You know he doesn't necessarily get those touches as much with Matthews and Marner because those guys are dominating the puck and they're dominating the play, and he's often just forechecking and going in the net or at least trying to so it's a full trickle down effect to me uh when you when you kind of look at it and i think that the going into the season i think that the strength of the team was was and the way it was designed is to roll three attack heavy lines right that's kind of how they were built when you sign max stomi and you say he's going to play on your third line that will never ever be a checking line ever max stomi does not do defense so but they're not really played or deployed like that. Um, I I still think he's often looking at it as the the top guys carry the mail and anything that the bottom six guys can contribute is gravy. And, you know, hopefully they just don't give anything up. And I just, I I think there's a little bit of a disconnect between how it's being deployed and how it was built. And I think that kind of also plays into some of the results we're seeing.
0: Yeah, like if you want a team that rolls two lines that are in theory top, like that's the whole premise, right? Two lines that are top lines and the decline of Tavares has sort of eroded that premise to some extent. But like, let's just say that you have two lines that are top lines like, and you're not worried about giving that much ice time to your bottom six. In theory, you want that bottom six to be extremely defensively stout, able to take on any situation, physical, because that's – if you're not going to give them really power play time and you're, you know, you're, you're thinking of maybe giving some of these lines like 11 minutes of ice time a night, first of all, you're kind of going to waste offense first players there to an extent. And secondly, you're not going to give them as many offensive zone face-offs. Like it, it's just sort of – you talked about the touches, the opportunities. But the, that's not the personnel that Maple Leafs have. Like Sure, they have David Kampf uh but outside of that you know this third line that they have you know the most common iteration which is roberts and domi and yarn like yarn is responsible defensively i don't think he's like a selkie candidate by any stretch of the imagination like that's a scoring line without scoring opportunities and so you know bertuzzi is a player obviously he's mainly been on the top six but he's not a defensive ace either like if you wanted to build a team and you're like our our idea is that our team is extremely good at defense and then we have a, this handful of amazing offensive players who we give all the offensive opportunities to. That could work, theoretically. Like, you could make an argument for and against that. You could say four players isn't enough to really drive an offense. I don't know if you have the defense, uh, the defensive imagination on the blue line to make that happen. In the end, you're putting too much pressure on too few guys. Like, you could make arguments against that, but that would probably make more sense than what, the Maple Leafs have now where like they have this top six that gets all the opportunity top yeah top two lines get all the opportunities and you have these guys who have all the power play time and then the other guys who are playing supportive roles those roles aren't necessarily the ones they're best suited for and to be honest when Treleving brought in Bertuzzi and Domi I kind of thought oh it's actually a good idea we've seen in the playoffs like that core four group if they go cold for whatever reason It is a relatively few number of guys. Like, if one of them gets injured, and the Maple Leafs have been lucky that these guys have been durable, but if a couple, one or two of them got injured, like suddenly you'd be in this devastating spot. I thought it was a smart idea to bring in more secondary scoring, but clearly that hasn't worked in terms of the player performance. Like, the players deserve some criticism for how it hasn't worked. And it also hasn't really worked in terms of the way that Sheldon Keefe conceptualizes the team and deploys them. And we, we come to the power play now. You know They're one for their last 20. Facing Winnipeg, they had five chances, couldn't put one in. And that's the way to score on Winnipeg because they're incredibly difficult to score on but actually haven't penalty killed well. So if you get a bunch of power plays against Winnipeg, that's an incredible gift. And they threw that gift in the trash. Uh, we saw that incredible shorthanded look that Winnipeg somehow blew. Like, Samsonov deserves credit. Too. Like, it was awesome, and it's great to see people getting behind him and chanting for him. But, like, it was also, like, put into his pad uh, like uh, they should they should have converted on yeah. that opportunity we'll put it that are you way.
1: are you could are, crit- are you critiquing the two on nothing save I mean if you blow <laughs> a two on nothing in the NHL that's that's on you right I mean more than the goalie generally yeah, speaking yeah that's uh, a, but-
0: that's what I'm saying like it was like obviously Samsoff did well but like it was yeah Winnipeg blew the opportunity but, I, but think to,
1: was- I think to your point too about the skill guys um, and previous playoff iterations of the Leafs is that's why I have a a hard time, you know, with people pining over some of the checkers that the Leafs have lost over the years. Uh, be it, you know, especially from this season to last, Alex Kerfoot's name we hear a ton, Pierre Engvall's name we hear a ton, you know, Zach Austin Reese's name is out there, and to me, we've seen that movie f- three, four times over at this point, where it's let's have checkers in the bottom six that are net zeros and let's pile it on our top guys. And that's why I was excited going in to the season just to see some more depth scoring options, some actual skill and ability. And Domi actually has been fairly productive this season, given his limited minutes, right? Like he already has 20 assists. They're barely over halfway through the season. I know he only has four goals, but by and large, considering how little he's played and some of the situations he's been put in, aka David Camp was the center for what two three weeks earlier. I mean, that was in the a season.
0: heinous pairing of players. Like yeah. a line with David Camp and Max Domi has yeah. no chance of succeeding in either yeah. capacity.
1: And and winger Max Domi too. Not even yeah. not even center Max Domi. So, you know, all things considered, I I see the the path that way. That's that's also why. I think when people sit there and go, yeah, it's, it's um, it's a worse product. I, what I generally see is I look back at the, the lines this time last year, you know, David camp was three C Zach Austin Reese was a staple, you know, he's not even in the league this year on a maybe wildcard hopeful Detroit team. He can't, he can't even stick as a regular you know, pairing ball is what he is. I know he signed a huge deal in the aisle, you know, in the Island, but they're not, you know, they just fired their coach for a reason. Their team has definitely been poor defensively uh, and they're leaking goals against like crazy considering how good their goalie is. I just, it's to me, it's, I think it's worth exploring a little bit more offense and and how to build that. I don't think that they're fully exploring it. I still feel like it's getting deployed a little bit as if it was the previous versions of the team. And we just, again, I'll always compare it to, they cannot do the Colorado model, right? When Colorado won the cup, the top two lines played a ton. The bottom six was littered with guys like Andrew Cogliano, Darren Helm, old friend Nicholas Obkubel, Knack, played like 14 games or something in that playoff run. Logan O'Connor, like pure grinders. But the top of their lineup was incredible. The Leafs do not have anyone like Kale McCart, go watch the shorthanded goal shorthanded goal he scored last night they do not they cannot tilt the ice the way that those guys can because they have probably the best defense pairing in the league and the leafs top pairing if you were to rank all the top pairings in the league is probably bottom 5 right now so you really cannot come close even even with Matthews and Marner being awesome and, and Nylander being awesome and all you cannot replicate it when the defense drop-off is that significant. So I think it's just about what are the advantages you're building as a lineup and how are you trying to tilt guys beyond Matthews and Marner and Nylander are unreal. Right. And I just, I don't see that necessarily playing out, but what I will say on the positive side, so we kind of mentioned roundabout Samsonov has played well the last couple of games. I thought he was actually good against Detroit as well. Um, and that ending was not his fault. And he actually made a big save right before Detroit ended up scoring the winner, too. So that was a, little... a
0: rough sequence with the, yeah. the crowd getting up for the yeah. Sammy and then it all falling apart. Yeah. yeah.
1: Welcome to Leaf fandom. That, that was that summed it up right there. Oh, the crowd's into it. Six save game winner. <laughs> uh, um, and I actually thought honestly, I thought the defense was quite good uh, against Winnipeg. You know, I know I know.
0: Outside the like, there was the first period yeah. was sloppy. There was a I, lot of giveaways. I thought Lilligren yeah. had a rough night, but
1: yeah, and so did Riley. Better. Riley, that first period was probably the worst period he's played the entire season. He got stick lifted like four times. He was turning the puck over like crazy. But when I say that, I mean I thought that was Connor Timmins' best game of the season by a mile. Considering opponents, I think I might
0: make Timmins a pet project of just pushing some Timmins propaganda. I like what yeah. he's done when he's been in the lineup the last couple he, games.
1: Yeah, I mean, okay. I'm glad that you prefaced that with a couple with the last couple of games, because I have not liked what he's done by and large on the season, but he flashes. He definitely flashes. He's big. He's right handed. He can move the puck. He can shoot the puck there. There are things to like. I've I've always been bullish on those things. I thought he was really good against a quality opponent last night, and he was one of the only guys that could competently move the puck and was making plays. And he was noticeable in a good way. I wish he got Marner hit him high on a play in the first period. And I wish he got that puck on net. Um, Cause that was, that was just an excellent chance and good on him for creating it and good on Marner for finding him as the trailer. You know, I thought McCabe McCabe's been generally solid for months on end. Now he's clearly their second best defenseman, but you know, Benoit did his thing. He ran a few guys. He, you know, he is meat and potatoes. It's never going to be sexy, but you, you need plumbers. I think he he's a competent one. I you know Lilligren is just jittery. I I don't know how else to describe it. He just like he loses the puck for no reason. Like like it not even... a
0: really rough outing against Winnipeg. Like I don't yeah. I didn't track his number of giveaways, but whatever the box score told you, there was significantly more giveaways than that. Like he really yeah. struggled to get the puck up ice to prevent the forecheck from getting to him. He's it's weird because with Lilligren, we're starting to question exactly what he's good at like he's fine at almost everything. Like in theory, there's nothing there's no huge hole in his game. But they because he doesn't get power play looks on the top unit and his offense is kind of it's been fine, but like the defense in theory is fine. But he's just not standing out in any particular direction. And with that, you know, I think that jittery is a good word. With the weird turnovers that seem to happen with him, it's and he looks like a five right now. I really want to
1: advocate to give him more minutes. I really, you know, they switched the D pairings in that game after the rough start and he was up with Riley and they put Brody on the left. Um, and, you know, they had Benoit Timmons going and they kind of moved things around a little bit as it went on. And I really want to advocate for it, but it's tough. I mean, in, in good faith, it's, it's easy for people to say from the outside, but when you're legitimately watching Lilgren get the puck with very little pressure and he just, stick handles and loses it without anyone actively stick checking him, let alone hitting him. It's hard to sit there if you're on the Leafs bench and go, yeah, put this guy with Riley and let's give him 22 at night and see how it goes. I, at the same time, I think there's been some evidence that when he's played more, he's played better. Maybe he thinks less. I think he's not a good third pairing defenseman. Like I think he just gets in his own head or something happens there where when he's playing 15 minutes, it's it's as if he loses his mind and just does bizarre things. It's almost as if when he plays more, he just goes out and plays, and maybe doesn't think as much, and kind of settles into a groove, because by and large, he has the tools. He has an absolute cannon of a shot. There are some clips and highlights and goals over the years where he has unleashed some one-timers, and some slap shots where you go, wow, there's serious heat on those. And he can obviously skate, and he can obviously make a pass other than You know, once every two weeks when he seems to fan on it in his own zone for no reason and give it away, you know, he's, he's thick. He's a strong guy. There's plenty of skills to really like about him. He's right-handed, which is always a plus at this rate. It's just, I don't, I don't know. I think he's a, he's a tough one. I still lean towards probably give him the minutes and see if it's, you know, sink or swim time with him, but You'd like to be, you'd like to see a little bit more from him on a shift to shift basis to feel better about that. I just their options are kind of limited. All that to say is I thought the Leafs were actually, you know, other than the two on zero, which was by and large the forwards and the top power play unit, and you know, Winnipeg had a few other decent chances. The Leafs really didn't give up a
0: ton. They really well, did. Realistically, I mean, and you can kind of chop up splits the way you want to chop them up. And sometimes it can be misleading. But if you look at since the beginning of January, we're talking about a 12-game span at this point, which includes both the brutal stretch we talked about last time we talked and some of the California trip and some of this. So it's kind of a jumble of results. It's but scary. over that over that period, the Maple Leafs have given up 26.8 shots a game, which is the third fewest in the NHL. And they've given up 2.5 goals per game which is one of the better marks in the NHL as well. I'm not sure exactly where that ranks. Um, I can pull that up, but that ranks fifth. And at the same time, in terms of their own shots on net, they're fourth in the NHL, 34.9. And, you know, shots aren't everything, and there has been some quantity over quality stuff with them lately where if you look at kind of chances and expected goals, they're not necessarily as good as the raw shots. But there have been, you know, flickers of them doing a better job of control. Like the Seattle Kraken game, for instance – Interesting game from Samsonov because he was asked to make a few big saves, but wasn't asked to make many saves. And I know that that Kraken team was injured, but that's a difficult, you know, it's the second half of a back-to-back, you're on the road. The other team, I believe, had been resting since Thursday. Like, that's one of those sneaky, difficult games. And to come out and allow less than 20 shots is one of the stronger defensive efforts that maybe it had that doesn't mean that they're like, I think we both know from a personnel standpoint, like I don't think this team right now has the ingredients to be some elite defensive team, but what we've seen with Keith at time, does it be able to elicit a stronger defensive effort and more defensive structure from a group with an offense first reputation? And there's tiny flickers of evidence that it's happening a little bit with the team right now, despite some you know individual foibles like with Brody and like with Lilligren um, but from a bigger picture standpoint, there has been a little bit of evidence that maybe this team isn't doomed to play the brutal defensive hockey they played at times this year. Yeah, so it's interesting because
1: as we work kind of through this conversation, I don't always you know, as much as we plan what we're going to talk about, kind of things take shape and and whatever plays out and and part of me kind of wonders as you as you break through it is, they were really bad defensively early in the season, right? We talked about it. They had lottery team-like defensive numbers, and they were just, by and large, getting by the power play was great. You know, Matthews and Nylander were doing their thing. Marner was producing. At that point, JTU was producing. You know, that second line in general was really good. All those things. But it was really bad defensively. And when the goaltending went south, it was it was like, wow, like they're not getting a save. And they're also giving up a ton of chances, uh, which is, of course, a recipe for disaster. And I wonder, ultimately, when you look at that now and you go, if if you were the coaching staff a month ago, what would be your priority? Clean things up defensively. And I'm not going to sit here and say that they're entirely in the clear defensively, but they've clearly taken steps towards playing better defensive hockey. I think that is entirely apparent. I, you know... Like we said, we go through that Winnipeg game. I don't think that they were bad defensively in that game. I thought that there were some weird moments on breakouts, and I thought the forwards were by and large terrible to a man, but I thought you actually had some good defense performances turned in by guys, and once Riley kind of smoothed it out after that first period, it went a long way. I mean, Winnipeg really didn't get a ton in the second or third, right? So... I wonder now if it's okay we've we've kind of smoothed that out and maybe established a bit of a better foundation defensively that we can now in turn go back to trying to get some of this secondary scoring sorted out and some of the support scoring and that is the step to do things right it's not let's get the let's get Tyler Bertuzzi going and Max Domi cuz he has four goals it's let's clean up things in our own end in our own house the thing that coaches can control the most aka angles guys are taking the way guys are structured and positioned and all of those kinds of fun things. That's the primary thing that you would focus on as, as a coach. And that, that is ultimately how I'd look at it. I'd say the scoring, the scoring is going to come from some of the guys. I think, I think they probably need to look at things, like I said, and be a little bit more honest on how can we get guys going? Can you slip in Tyler Bertuzzi, on the top power play unit at times. Can you give Matthew Nyes a little bit more power play time? Can you, like, how do you generate some extra touches for some of these guys, right? We saw Max Domi get a shift with Matthews and Marner against Vancouver towards the end of the game. And it was probably his best shift in like a week, right? In terms of making plays and getting the puck. and And so how do you kind of do those things to spark guys? Obviously he also does well with Robertson. So that should probably get a little bit more runway now kind of thing. And once that smooths out, again, I, I, I see a lot of this team is clearly worse than last year's team. I don't necessarily buy that. I, I do think the biggest thing in all of that is TJ Brody has dropped from being a reasonable top pairing second, you know, support defenseman uh, alongside Riley to basically a third pairing defenseman this season, and there's no way for you to properly like succession plan that mid season. Right. As we talk about Timothy Lilligren, I think that's by and large, the biggest difference between the team, some of the performances you see this season to last season, they legitimately don't have a reliable top end pairing that you can bank on. Right. We're seeing Benoit have games where he plays 20 plus minutes and with Jake McCabe and kudos to those guys. They've turned in a good season so far, but that's not where you want to be on paper. And I think the secondary scoring will come. I think some of these things will even out. I would be floored if this team doesn't go on an offensive heater between now and the end of the season. And even with all that said, they're still firmly in a playoff spot right now. And they're kind of like trekking along collecting points where you have a very frustrating game like the Winnipeg game. But at the same time, you ultimately look at it and go, oh, well, they got two points. So they're buying themselves opportunities to clean up the process.
0: Yeah, and you've talked a lot, which I think is interesting, about the idea of Sheldon Keefe coaching very hard for this game tonight. You know what I mean? Like trying to maximize your opportunity of winning in the present, sort of no matter what, without having foresight. Um, and I think at times that criticism has been valid, but then you look at Wednesday and it's a 0-0 game and this power play thing happens. And they pull the first unit and they bench them in a game where they need a goal desperately. They know it's incredibly difficult to score against the Jets. They know the way you get to the Jets is by getting to their penalty killing unit. Like that has been how you have a chance against someone, especially in their recent run, like over the not just over the course of the season, but sort of the last six weeks or so. And I thought that that was an encouraging sign that he was willing to make that move you could argue the kind of talking heads about like sending a message and the interpersonal component of that. And I think that that that's valid. I can't claim an incredible amount of insight into how Mitch Marner's brain works and whether that's going to effectively uh, change his behaviors and things like that. No but comment, w- no comment. Uh, no comment. <laughs> but I will say that, it, it is a bit of a counterpoint to that thing we're talking about. It's it's the idea that I'm going to do this thing that may hurt my chances of winning tonight because it, there's a bigger picture. And I would like to see more evidence of that. I mean, courage is probably too strong a word. I don't think we need to pin a medal <laughs> to Sheldon Keefe right now. But that type of idea where it's like, I'm willing to make a sacros today. I'm willing to maybe you know, risk my chances of taking a loss here that I, you know, it would hurt to take this loss, but I'm going to risk it a little bit more by doing X. And, you know, playing Nick Robertson, his career high in ice time on Wednesday and giving him a shot, In a three-on-three scenario, like it, that would have been hard to envision a while back. The idea of Nick Robertson playing a a role in three-on-three and him playing that much time, which is funny, because he played one good game. And Sheldon Keith was like, "Oh, I love that the nine minutes fifty-two this guy played." And for some reason, it wasn't even nine minutes. It was like eight
1: fifty-seven. I was like, "Why did you play him so little then? If you loved his game."
0: Yeah, that was a, But a then suddenly he'd like, boom, it was binary he earned Keith's trust. So like you could argue with that process, but I want to see more stuff like that in the weeks to come and more experimentation. And maybe that's too much to ask. But that power pay benching gave me some level of uh, insight that maybe that is creeping into Keith's brain a little bit. So, yeah, I think people have this thought where it's it's as if, oh, well,
1: Keith is worsening their chances um by not playing the top guys and in reality it's the top guys are worsening their chances by playing really bad hockey that's what's happening Keith is only reacting to the situation which I wanted to see more of I think by and large they've received a pass when they've played poorly and at some point it's it's like you're the top guys on this team you guys make a ton of money you know you have a clear hierarchy in terms of how things are run in this group this is not This is not everyone is equal and they all make the same amount of money and it is what it is. There's a clear hierarchy and how things are built and structured on this team and and that means there's an expectation as to how you play and when you're not meeting it, you're the ones hurting the team. And I know we have a few more minutes here, so I want to get into this just quickly, is the big part for me with that is the power play. So I don't think, I think by and large, the power play is struggling because of those things this these guys have played a long time together on the power play they know how to be successful on it and they have been successful on it the issues that i'm seeing are you know there was one power play in the second period where mitch marner gets the puck up top and he has it around the middle of the ice and he brings it on his forehand side across the blue line and matthews pulls up high and he's wide open wide open there's no one around him And if you're a fan watching it, you instantly go, perfect. Hit Matthews with the pass. This is the best goal scorer in the league. He's going to walk in. He's going to make something happen. And Marner just continues to pull it and then floats a shot to the net and it gets blocked and cleared. And it's a terrible play. It's just a terrible play. We're watching Nylander up top, which he seems to just, it seems, you know, they've had a few goals with him up there. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to play up here now. And Morgan Riley is randomly in front of the net as if he's like prime JVR trying to make deflections and play. Morgan
0: Riley's positioning on the power play has been bizarre in recent weeks. It's been all over the place.
1: And to me, I just watched them go, you guys with a straight face cannot think this is the right deployment. This is you guys Like, like this is this is ego. This is this is beyond X's and O's. You know, Marner's sitting there and and saying, ah, I'm going to float this shot through. He has some of the best vision in the league. There's no way he didn't know Matthews was there. You know, other guys that could sit there and go, yeah, I probably didn't see him or something to that effect. He's played with him for seven years. He's one of the best passers in the league. Matthews is wide open. There's just no planet. You know, like those are, those are deeper issues. So it, it was honestly, it was well-deserved to sit them because it's finally like, you know what? Like, I can't watch you guys do this anymore where you you're all trying to get yours instead of moving things around and, and guys aren't in the right spots. And there's so many just fundamental issues, I think of, of how they're playing it. We've seen little things of that before, right? Um, hints of that in previous years where, you know, Marner wants to play the half wall and the half wall wasn't working and things of that nature. Right. And it felt like that was cleaned up for a little bit. And, and to me it's kind of reverted back and, um, I d- I do think there's some X's and O structures too. Their their break their entries are terrible right now. Um, the whole purpose of the drop pass is is it's in a it's a way to attack how teams clog the neutral zone. But when teams shift how they clog the neutral zone, meaning they pull that guy and he hangs in your zone, your own zone, anticipating the drop pass, then you are no longer playing against the neutral zone trap that that play was designed for you're now actually playing into their hand, which is often what we're seeing. Like they're not taking what's in front of them. So I just, it's
0: become very predictable too. Like we've seen yeah. Neilander get his, his pocket picked because the other team just knows there's like an 85% chance someone's going to throw a draw pass here. I know we are, we're running out of time here. Would have loved to go a little bit longer. Sometimes circumstances don't allow for that. Maybe we will next week. Uh, we appreciate all of you guys listening in as per always i like to call out that we appreciate ratings and reviews and for you to just tell people about the podcast as uh, we continue to grow this new version of it and we will be with you again next week everyone is looking at me time is running out Me. I just want to know we're down by three Look inside yourself, I know what I see